so thankful for Brother Scott's preaching the Word of God last weekend, and um, thankful that he took on a, a subject that has really been on his heart, my heart. This this is something that we were talking about even last year about the need to address the subject, albeit not a popular subject, but the subject of church discipline and why it is such an important um, matter for the church. Um, Especially in light of the the events of last year, it it is important that we understand what church discipline is, what the goal is. Um, A church that seeks to love its members and love those who are within uh, her assembly and a church that seeks purity must indeed be faithful to apply church discipline. Um, and I have to say that it, this is, like all the other subjects that we've been dealing with, this is actually a very uh, broad and vast subject. There are many other aspects of this that we could have covered. Um, Paul talks about the idea of dealing with factionalism in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, rejecting a factious man after a first and second warning. Uh, Romans 16 and verse 17, he says to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. And there are different layers of discipline that can be applied within the church. And even the apostle Paul, as we know, uh, when Cephas was actually creating division within um, the body, as, as Paul addresses the matter in Galatians chapter 2, remember Paul publicly rebuked Peter for his factionalism and the fact that he was no longer associating with the Gentiles because of the influence of the Judaizers, this was something that warranted the correction issued by Paul. All of these things should remind us of the fact that if we really love Christ and we love God's people, we we need to address problems within the body of Christ whenever they arise. And again, none of this is ever an act of vengeance. It is really an act of love to seek correction and actual reconciliation and restoration. And I would say this, while no one should ever seek conflict or controversy within the church, those who imagine that conflict should never take place within the church should go back and read their New Testaments because the New Testament is filled with conflict And it is filled also with the correction of the errors that we see throughout the New Testament. And this is why, brethren, I said at last year's all-church meeting that a church that is not interested in pursuing holiness is a church that is doomed to fail. We have to pursue purity within the body of Christ. Now, one other thing I do want to say um, And that is this, it has to do with the subject of the fact that uh, we're still waiting to get into Hebrews. And trust me, I I was hoping that we would get into it last year, but uh, um, there were reasons not to. And uh, of course, we went through Philemon just for about almost three months, a very short book. But I want you to understand something about the whole concept of just preaching the word of God and the differences between topical preaching and preaching particular books of the Bible. For one thing, men who just engage in topical preaching will run the risk of just giving the very women will of whatever is coming to their mind from the pulpit, and that's actually a dangerous thing. I think preaching through books of the Bible is a a safety in many respects. 
And also, men who preach topically can afford themselves the luxury of avoiding complex and difficult passages in the Bible, and that's not good. Uh, we, need to, we need to be committed to the whole counsel of God's word, right? So that requires diligence from the pulpit in this matter of preaching through books of the Bible. Now, on the other hand, those who preach the books of the Bible have to keep in mind that there is an apostolic example and model for issuing directed instruction according to the need of the moment. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Um, going through books of the Bible are, are important, but there are times when you have to stop what you're doing and actually address particular needs within the body. The epistle of Jude is a great example of that. Uh, Jude was going to preach on the subject of our common salvation. He was going that way, and then all of a sudden he realized he needed to address the errorist in the, in the body, those who were turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And so he was diverted to that need. The epistle to Colossae is an epistle that issues directed instruction regarding those who are being taken captive by worldly philosophy. At Corinth, we see that there were many correctives that were being issued concerning their abuse of spiritual gifts, the spiritual compromise that they were engaging in, and their toleration of false doctrine. First and Second Thessalonians, similar. First and Second Peter, again, similar. Second and Third John. Many of the epistles of the New Testament issue directed instruction according to the need of the local church. So let me just say this. My pattern over the years has been this. For the most part, I preach through books of the Bible, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. 70 to 80% of my preaching is that. The rest is what I would call directed instruction according to the need of the moment. And I want you to know that as Scott and I have been praying about just the life of the church and where we are as a church, the whole subject of membership is something that we have very much on our heart to address here, not just to the new members, as we'll be talking about it tonight, but for all the members of the church here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Because how we conduct ourselves in the household of God and how we encourage one another is a very, very important matter to consider. Now, two Sundays ago, I addressed from Ephesians chapter 4 this concept of the fact that it is God who creates unity in the church. We don't create unity. He creates unity. But we're called to preserve the unity that he himself creates. That takes work. That takes effort. And so last time, when I, last time I was in the pulpit, I preached from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, where Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of, he says, one another. And there he uses the reciprocal pronoun, indicating the fact that we all equally have a universal responsibility to speak truth to one another. And there's no distinguishing between one another in terms of that responsibility and duty. We all share that duty and responsibility. That's just one of the many one another's in the Bible. There are several, and there are many lessons that we could cover, and we're not going to go through them all. But here this morning, I want to cover some of the one another's that I think are very important for us to consider as a church in order to apply this preventive medicine model of 
helping one another so that we don't become ill as a church, so that we don't become weak as a church. The more we're invested in, in this preventive medicine of, of encouraging and building one another up, the less likely we'll have problems and issues within the body of Christ. I, I had to go to uh, the VA Medical Center and check in finally after being here for a while, and, and I had to register in order to get signed up with a doctor, and they uh, wanted me to sign up for their preventive medicine program. Uh, where, you know, again, you understand the concept of preventive medicine, uh, take good care of your body, eat well, exercise, and so forth, and you might be able to keep yourself out of trouble in terms of having particular physical ailments. It's a good idea. It's a good plan. It's really good stewardship, frankly. Well, the, the body of Christ needs to do that as well. And to the extent that we're engaged in this idea of the one another's of Scripture, we're actually engaging in this preventive medicine model, if we can use those terms. So this morning, the preventive medicine of the one another's that I would like to cover are just three. Number one, as the people of God, we have a duty to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is a principle in scripture that I think, I believe, is actually under-preached and under-emphasized, and I, I don't think it's helpful to the church. And I want to cover why it is important and how we can do it. Secondly, we have a calling to pray for one another, and I know that you already know that, but the idea of actually engaging in this matter of prayer for one another and even learning how to pray for one another is a very crucial concept. So I do want to talk about that uh, here this morning. And then finally, the last one another that I want us to consider is this idea of bearing one another's burdens. And this is really related to the idea of prayer, but understanding and knowing who we're sitting next to, who we're fellowshipping with, and how we're doing, and how we can pray for each other, and how we can bear one another's burdens is a very, very crucial concept and idea. And obviously, with all of these, we could spend a lot of time in every one point, but uh, we're just going to summarize every one of these here this morning to give us kind of a, a sampling of the preventive medicine of engaging in the one another's. And so as to this first point, this duty to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, let me ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Here the apostle Paul enjoins us to do the following. He says, let the word of Christ... Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing alone one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Very simple verse, but it's really packed and loaded with great principles that I believe that we can profit from and benefit greatly from. Notice how this verse starts. It doesn't begin with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It starts with the word of God. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
And then he says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the connective tissue that we have here is that the word of God needs to dwell within us. The word of Christ needs to dwell within us. And one of the instrumental means in which we can help reinforce that indwelling of the word of God is through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They're, in a, in a sense, one of the tools in the tool chest that we have to encourage one another to think about and meditate on the word of God. And so we have this mutual encouragement ministry that is rooted in the word of Christ and is instrumentally buttressed and strengthened and reinforced through the mutual encouragement that we can give each other through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs That's the horizontal version of that. And then the vertical aspect of this is that as we sing together with thankfulness in our hearts to God, that too is a ministry of encouragement. Brethren, we just sang several hymns together that celebrate our redemption. And we're able to celebrate and rejoice in that truth together. Saying to God, thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the fact that I have been redeemed and delivered from the guilt and the power of sin, that double cure that we have, that is through the merit and the work of Christ. And so together we just sang about that. And we're all encouraged mutually together in that ministry of worshiping God together. I think, I believe that, again, this section of scripture has been really underemphasized to a fault in the ministry of the modern church. We all know and understand that we're called to encourage one another by means of the scriptures. But what about this idea of having a robust hymnody whereby we use scripturally based psalms, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in order to encourage one another and in order to assist one another in this matter of having the word of Christ dwell richly within us. Again, Good and sound songs are tools in the tool chest of this ministry of mutual encouragement, which is one of the reasons why we need to make sure that we filter out the bad songs, and I've said this many times, there are good and bad songs, past and present, and we just have to be careful about what we sing and what we use to encourage one another in terms of hymnody. But keep in mind, This is an imperative. This is a calling that we have to one another to utilize such songs in order to simulate one another in this matter of having the word of Christ dwell richly within us. By the way, the corollary text to this text in Colossians 3.16 is Ephesians 5.19. There Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You say, Wait a minute, I I thought that songs are just about singing to God. Well, they are that plus this idea of speaking to one another regarding the content of the songs that we sing. And you say, well, so what does this look like? How does one use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to aid others in this matter of having the word of Christ dwell richly within them? Well, just look at the apostolic model. Look at the apostolic example that we have with the Apostle Paul. In fact, when we went through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, we had an example of this very thing. 
Paul says in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then he says this, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he shares a hymn. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's a short song that he includes in his pedagogical instruction to Timothy. What is Paul doing? He's taking a song and he is incorporating it in his instruction to Timothy so that the word of Christ would dwell richly within Timothy and that this would be used as a tool to remember and understand the principle of Christ's lordship over all. Where was he taken? He was taken up in glory. We're going to be talking about this, by the way, when we go through the book of Hebrews. Where is he now? Where is our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He is exalted in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has all power, all authority, all dominion with respect to all things, especially with respect to the church. It's his house, remember? His house, and we go by what? His rules. What a powerful way to summarize the teaching that he is giving when he says that we are to know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. How do we conduct ourselves in the household of God? By going to God's standards, not our own. Why? Because our Lord and Savior is exalted in the heavens in glory. It's his house and we go by his rules. What a wonderful way to use a song to strengthen and underscore the teaching of the word of God. There are many other examples. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I love that. Brethren, don't ever forget that. No matter what happens, what happens to the word of God, it's never imprisoned. For this reason, he says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Then he shares a song. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Again, a very simple, brief song, but one that is rooted in, in, in the bedrock truth and reality of God's faithfulness. Our God, who has redeemed us, will not forsake us in the end. He cannot de deny himself. The promises that God has given concerning the Lord Jesus Christ have become have been made fulfilled in all that Christ has done. He was promised to come as a descendant of David, and that has been fulfilled. It has been promised that he would rise from the dead, and that has been fulfilled. It has been promised that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will obtain eternal glory, and for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that will be fulfilled. What do we know about the promises of God? All that God promises to fulfill, he fulfills. And so Paul reinforces this with a song. 
By the way, on Wednesday, Wednesday evening, as we went through the, the hymn, Rock of Ages, we talked about that remarkable statement of the double cure, where the Lord cleanses us from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. He delivers us from the power of sin. We talked about this in light of the context of the fact that when we talk to other people about our Lord and Savior, we're sharing with them the fact that our God is supreme. He is supreme. We're talking about the supremacy of our Lord. The salvation of a sinner is a demonstration of God's supremacy. The supremacy of his power, the supremacy of his mercy, his kindness, and his grace. And that's why when we sing together, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. That is a powerful confession that we make as we praise God with those words. And it is a song that we can encourage one another as we speak to one another regarding that hymn where we can say, thanks be to God that our Lord is so powerful that he can do this. And he has. There are many other songs and hymns in the New Testament. There's the Christ hymn in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. There's the short, uh, brief song that appears in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul, writing to the Ephesians, warning them against the dangers of entering into transgression and sin, he says, therefore do not be partakers with them, those who walk in darkness. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, he says. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And then he says, for this reason it says, awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's a really short song. But it is a reminder to us of the fact that God raises us from the death of our sin. He gives us newness of life in which we are to walk, and this is our calling. It's a simple song, but it reinforces a very powerful truth. Brethren, let us be a people who use the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we have in our tool chest to encourage one another, to build one another up, to aid each other in this matter of having the word of Christ dwell richly within us. Throughout my ministry, I've endeavored to apply this as much as possible. This is why I often tie my sermons to the songs that we sing. Um, this is why I often mention hymns in the middle of my sermons. It's, I'm just imitating, I'm just copying what, the, uh, what we see in Scripture. In fact, there have been some sermons that I preach where I actually stop in the middle of the sermon and then have the congregation sing a hymn. I don't do that terribly often, but... Again, it is following a biblical model. To the extent that we have hymns that can help us to think about the word of God, the truths of God, the glory of God, we need to use them. We're commanded to do this. And it's a great privilege to do so. 
Brethren, this is why the music ministry is to be tied to the pulpit and teaching ministry because these things are indelibly linked as is made clear by Colossians 3.16. Both constitute an important ministry of teaching and exhortation. When this is not emphasized, when the, the music ministry is not tied to the pulpit ministry well, sometimes you end up with a competing entity that actually works against the teaching ministry in the local church. And this can come by way of introducing songs that might be popular but are not very doctrinal, doctrinally sound. There, there are many songs, even in the modern day, that are just very weak. They talk about giving thanks to God, but there's just not enough meat on the bones of the song to help us to think about who we're actually giving praise to. Again, there are good and bad songs from every generation. What we need to do is pick the best, put them in our tool chests, and draw them out as we need to in order to encourage one another so that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us. It's a great privilege for us to engage in. And by the way, this is why we purchased new hymnals, because we wanted to increase the arsenal of the tools that we have in the tool chest that we have as, as a people in order to encourage one another in this way. This is one of the one another's that we're called to do. And my prayer is, is that we would continue to increase and grow in this way. And so we're, we have a duty to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We also, and this is our second point, we also have an important calling to pray for one another. Now, there are many verses that call us to this duty and privilege of praying for one another, but the one particular text that comes to mind when I think about this idea of our being vigilant in this matter of prayer comes in Ephesians chapter 6. There, Paul enjoins us to stand firm in the battle that we are engaged in against the forces of darkness, and he enjoins us then, in order to engage in this battle, to take up the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, we're to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we're to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we're to engage in prayer. Prayer. Now, sometimes expositors don't include prayer as a part of the arsenal of the full armor of God, but I believe that it is crucial to the full armor of God. It is essentially the battle strategy by which we employ the armor that has been given to us by God. He says in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for who? All the saints. It's another way of saying that we have a mutual responsibility to pray for one another. I don't get to say, well, I'm going to pray for these people, but not those people. We pray for one another. We pray for all the saints. SDF Salmon in the Expositor's Greek Testament says this of the importance of prayer as a part of the armor of God. He says this great requirement of standing ready for the combat can be made good only when prayer, constant earnest spiritual prayer is added to the careful equipment with all the parts of the panoply of God. 
That's another way of saying if you take prayer out of the equation, what do we have? Prayer enables us to depend upon and seek out and acquire the very power of God in every aspect of our daily life. This is why it is something that has to be included in our understanding of the full armor of God. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wonderfully and beautifully incorporates prayer as a part of the armor. When he is brought to the, to the palace beautiful, he is taken to a place called the armory. And there he was shown all kinds of equipment that their Lord had provided for pilgrims. This equipment, he says, included the sword, shield, helmet, breastplate, prayers, and shoes that will not wear out. Notice he includes prayer. There was enough of all this there to equip for the service of their Lord as many people as there are stars in the sky for multitude. In other words, God has supplied in abundance all that we need in order to carry on in this fight against the, the forces of darkness. And prayer is a part of that. It is a crucial part of that. In fact, later on in, in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes that moment, remember, when Christian encountered Apollyon or Satan. And Bunyan says that, <clears throat> that he, Christian, pulled out his sword and he pulled out another weapon called all prayer. And Christian cried out in prayer, he said, O Lord, save me. O Lord, save me. All of this is is crucial for our engaging in battle as Christians. We're to be vigilant in prayer. Again, he says, with all prayer, petition, pray at all times in the spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So all prayer and petition, all categories of prayer we can bring to God, casting all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're to pray at all times, and he uses the word kairos. It speaks of all the seasons of life. So in other words, in any occasion of life, in any situation, we can go to God and we can enter into his throne of grace and bring our petitions to him. We're also to pray in the Spirit. Why? Because it is the Spirit who helps us in our weakness, Paul says. He says, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I love what Bunyan said. He says, sometimes the best prayers are often more groans than words. Thanks be to God that the Spirit of God intercedes on my behalf. There are times when I come before God and I say, Lord, I'm not even sure where to begin, except to do as David often did and just cry out, God, help me. Help me. And we're to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Why? Because it's easy to become weak in prayer, sleepy in prayer, losing our sense of vigilance and the need for prayer, We need to be like the soldiers who wait for the Lord, the armed guards who guard the city. Psalm 130 in verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more for the watchman for the morning. And again, we're to pray for one another, for all the saints. You know what's so beautiful about all this? Brethren, 
is that as the children of God, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, we now have this access to the Father that we did not have beforehand. You know, three times in the book of Revelation, we are told that he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God, that is the, 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 um, the Lord Jesus Christ, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Three times we see this in the book of Revelation. We have this access because we have been made to serve as priests in the household of God. And the beautiful reality, brethren, is, is that we now have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, asthene, very important term, which I'm going to get to in a moment. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he had been presented with temptations in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that he is compassionate and understands our travail and, and trials in this life. And so the author of Hebrews says this, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to, high, to help in time of need. Every one of us have this equal access to the throne of grace. What a beautiful truth this is, brethren. We can all go to our Father through the blood of Christ, through the merit of Christ, and we can give him our petitions, praying for one another, for the needs of one, another's, of one another. Brethren, let me, let me add to this something that has been on my heart to share, and actually it's something that I had uh, considered even getting into last year, but as, as a pastor and as elders, this ministry of prayer is a crucial ministry that we have on behalf of the church, for the church. And by the way, this is why the diaconate was established originally in Acts chapter 6, so as to preserve and protect the ministry of elders so that they could be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the uh, texts of scripture that um, I think is an important thing to cover, and I, I, I was looking at my sermons on uh, the book of James here um, when, when I dealt with this um, years and years and years ago. James chapter 5 talks about the prayer ministry of elders to those who are asthene, weak. And uh, years ago when I pre preached the, through the book of James, I went through the section of scripture, I think I took seven sermons to go through it. So Trust me, I'm going to summarize this, but it's something that's important, I believe, that we understand what James is saying and what he isn't saying so as to establish a proper sense of understanding of what is to be expected in the ministry of elders in this matter of prayer. James raises the very important question. He says, is anyone among you asthene? And the translations use the word sick, but really a, a more appropriate translation would be weak. Is any among you, he says, asthene, weak, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is kemnonta. This is another important word, which means weary or dispirited, 
And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, it's important to notice a very important detail here. James is making an absolute promise with an absolute outcome. He says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is called kamnonta, dispirited or weary. And then he says, and, if, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Why is the word will there? It's a very important word. What it means is, is that God, it's not that God might forgive sins or might restore this individual. We use the word will in order to convey an, a very important idea. It is the idea of the indicative verb. What James is saying is, is that what will happen is that the person who prays in faith, they will be restored. He doesn't say they might be, they will be. And he will be raised up and he will be forgiven if there are sins that have been forgiven. All those are promises that are given in this section of scripture. And I would say to you that over the years, really throughout the span of church history, the interpretations of these passages have varied quite a bit. And I fear that for the most part, in many respects, the Protestant church has almost ignored this section of scripture because of Rome's abuse of these verses with respect to the doctrine of extreme unction. And even the charismatic movement and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel advances the notion of the promise of physical healing, which many assume that this is, that's what this, these verses are talking about. But the problem that you have there is, is that people who will pray for physical healing but then are not healed are then left to feel guilty because somehow they didn't have enough faith in order to be physically healed. And I've known a lot of people who have gone through this and they felt uh, guilty un, un, without warrant for the fact that they were not experiencing physical healing even when they prayed earnestly for physical healing. James 5, I would submit to you, is not talking about physical restoration, but spiritual restoration of an individual who is asthenes and kamnonta. Dr. Daniel Hayden, of, writing in the Bibliotheca Sacra of 1981, says this, many see this passage of a for, as a formula for church practice which obligates God to grant requests for physical healing. The result of this view is that many Christians are disappointed when God does not answer what he seemingly has promised. God does obligate himself with his word, but not to man's misinterpretations of his word. Overcoming a faulty translation of the original Greek text is often an initial step in clarifying a troublesome passage. Twice the word sick appears in the English text of James 5, 13 through 18, but in neither case is it an accurate rendering of the two Greek words used by James. And there he's using, he's referring to the words asthenes and kamnonta. J. Ronald Blue in the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the heart of the problem lies in just what James meant when he referred to the sick. Actually, there's no reason to consider sick as referring exclusively to physical illness. The word asthene literally means to be weak. Though it is used in the gospel for physical maladies, it is generally used in Acts and the epistles to refer to weak faith or a weak conscience. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Romans 6, 19, uh, Romans 14, 1, 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 12, and I would even say including through chapter 10. He goes on and he says that it could be considered weak is, 
in this verse is clear in that another Greek word, kamnonta, in James 5.15, translated sick person, literally means to be weary. The only other use in the New Testament is found in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3 of that word clearly emphasizes this same meaning of weariness. James was not referring to the bedfast, the diseased, or the ill. Instead, he wrote to those who, were, who had grown weary, who had become weak both morally and spiritually in the midst of suffering. These are the ones who should call for help, uh, call for the help of the elders of the church. Now, like I said, there, there are a lot more details to get into this, but I would even say that it's important to note the context of James. James, throughout his epistle, is calling upon weak brethren who are getting caught up in all kinds of moral corruption and doctrinal error, and he's calling them to be restored out of these things. And so the, the notion of him speaking of physical healing is really alien to the full force and thrust and context of James. But also you have to keep in mind the fact that he began this series, this section, talking about the suffering of Job. And what's remarkable about the suffering of Job is that when you go to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word kamnonta appears only twice in the canonical books of the Old Testament, and they're in the book of Job. They're in the book of Job. Fittingly, I think, in light of the context of what James is teaching. There in Job, who was at the end of himself and who had gone through all kinds of trials and travails, he says, I am Camno of my life, weary of it, in other words. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Then in, in Job chapter 17 and verse 1, he says, my spirit is Camno. It's broken. Again, I'm at the end of myself. You know, what's so beautiful about the book of Job is that, yes, the Lord brought Job to the end of himself, but that was the point at which he was then restored. He finally came to the point where he retracted his complaints and he repented in dust and ashes and the Lord restored him. A beautiful, beautiful picture of exactly what James is talking about. We're to cry out to God in faith, knowing and understanding that he is the one who delivers us. Much like the expression of David when he was at the end of his, his own life in, in the sense of his being distressed and dispirited, he said, my soul is greatly dismayed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me because of thy loving kindness. He says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. And then his prayer is offered up in faith and God hears him. He says, depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. Brethren, have you ever been so distressed and dispirited that you felt like as if you were like the disciples who in their great hour of prayer, when the Lord called upon them to pray, what were they doing? They were sleeping. You know, when we're that sorrowful and depressed, sometimes that's all that we can do. We can just be like David and just lay down on our bed and just drown ourselves in our tears. The good news is, is that when we cry out to God in faith, he does raise us up and restore us. 
And I would say to you that this is an important ministry of prayer. It is an important ministry of prayer of the elders for those who are in this state of being distressed and dispirited and depressed. And in this ministry of prayer for one to another, brethren, this is something that we would encourage you to consider if any of you are ever feeling this same way, we would want to be able to visit with you and pray with you in order to do this very thing that James calls the elders of the church to do, to pray for those who are suffering in this way. And so we have a duty to exhort one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We have a calling to pray for one another, and this is a crucial ministry of prayer. Finally, we have a need to bear one another's burdens, and I'm going to have to be brief with this section, but I want to direct your attention to Galatians chapter 6 for this particular one another. Here in Galatians chapter 6, and this was referred to last time, Paul says, brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now what does this mean to bear one another's burdens and how is it that this fulfills the law of Christ? Well, there's a corollary text to this found in 1 Corinthians 9 in reference to Paul's ministry of love and compassion to the asthene, the weaker among us, those who are distressed and dispirited. Fulfilling the law of Christ is reaching out to others in compassion, love and mercy, and bearing their burdens, helping them with their burdens as they struggle in life. And this is very much like what Paul enjoins the church at Rome when he says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. This is the idea of bearing one another's burdens. Seeing to it that those who are faltering and failing and stumbling in some form of a trespass and sin, that we have a responsibility to reach out to them and assist them in their trial and struggle. The individual in question in Galatians 6 is an individual who has been caught in a trespass. We don't know what the particular trespass is, but the one who has spiritual strength and maturity is called upon to help the one who is asthene, who is weak. And they're to do so in this way. They're called to be humble in offering this assistance. He says, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Why? because pride destroys everything. Humility is essential for such a ministry of assistance to others. And so he goes on in verse three and he says this, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. And then he says, for each one shall bear his own load. Now you say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to bear the burdens of others. Now you're saying to me that I have to bear my own load. There's no contradiction here. It might sound that way. I'm not, not sure of how all the translations translate this. 
But in the first occasion where he says that we're to bear one another's burdens, he uses the word baros that speaks of the idea of hardships, stress, and afflictions. So it's really like what Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 15. He says, weep with those who weep. But when he says in verse 5, each one will bear his own load, here he uses the word fortion, which speaks of the idea of, it literally means a weight or a ship's cargo, and it bears the idea of the fact that we all have a stewardship of life and ministry on our own. In other words, we all will stand before God before the, day of the, before the judgment seat on the day of judgment. And there's no sense in which I can bear that reality for someone else. I can't stand and will not stand before God on behalf of another person on the day of judgment. And this is his point. In fact, I would say to you, Calvin summarizes this so well. He says, every man shall bear his own burdens To destroy sloth and pride, he brings before us the judgment of God in which every individual for himself and without a comparison with others will give an account of his life. The apostle affirms that the false conclusions to which we are thus conducted will find no place in the judgment of God because there everyone will bear his own burden and none will stand acquitted by others from their own sins. This is the true meaning of the words. This is an important concept, brethren. We need to help each other. We need to bear one another's burdens. And we need to weep with those who weep. But in so doing, we can't live the other person's life for them. What does a parent, what does a responsible parent do for a child? Well, they bear the burdens and the struggles and the trials of the child. They They help the child in their weakness and their frailty. They help the child to learn and how to grow and how to walk and how to live. And they nurture the child in such a way that the child learns how to walk on their own two feet. And eventually as they grow and get older and older and older, they learn how to live their own lives as an individual before God. Parents who coddle their children all their lives and try to do everything for their children all all their lives are not loving their children because they're not enabling the child to learn how to stand on their own two feet. Paul says, yes, help one another, bear one another's burdens, but be responsible and know this. You can't live the other person's life. In the end, they will have to answer to God on their own. That's an important principle. And brethren, I fear that sometimes we lose sight of this. In all of our efforts to assist one another, we cannot and must not lose sight of that crucial principle. So brethren, I would just say to you that these one another's, they're all preventive medicine uh, provisions of God. They're all tools in the chest that have been given to us whereby we can take the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we have and encourage one another with these as instruments of encouragement. You know, this means that learning hymns and sharing hymns with one another is really a a wonderful thing to do. I can't tell you how many times, even since we have been here, that we've had people share with us not just scriptures to encourage us, but hymns 
that would help us elevate our souls and to contemplate and, and think about the word of Christ so that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us as we think about the theology of the hymn. And then we're able to sing the hymn and meditate on the hymn and contemplate the truths of the hymn. All of this is part and parcel of the mechanism of meditating on the word of Christ. This is a ministry we're called to have with one another. That means learning songs that are good, that are sound, that are biblical. That means sharing them with one another. It's a great privilege, and I pray that we would grow in this great privilege in ministry. Concerning prayer, this is, again, a crucial ministry. We have a prayer chain that, um, and by the way, let me say this, uh, our prayer chain is a wonderful opportunity for the brethren here to share prayer requests with one another. Sometimes we have to think about uh, what those prayer requests are and, and filter them a little bit. Sometimes a little bit more detail is given than what might be needed. Um, but those efforts to do that are not designed to prohibit prayer for one another, but to be discerning in the matter of prayer. And I would even say, even in prayer meetings, people need to be mindful about how they even share prayer requests and how much detail they need to give. Uh, some matters are matters of privacy and so forth. But the ministry of prayer, one to another, is a crucial thing. Not only our prayer chain do, do we have, but we also have our time of prayer at 915 uh, in the morning before the services. And brethren, I would encourage any and all who can be a part of that to come and to pray and the point of this, the design of this, is to pray for the services, to pray for the preaching of the word of God, to pray for the ministry that we have one to another here as we gather together to worship our Lord. And again, as I already mentioned, the prayer, in, uh, the prayer ministry of, of the elders is, a, is another component of this. And as I said to you before, those who feel distressed and dispirited like Job if you ever come to that point and place in your life, please call upon us so that we can minister to you in prayer. And finally, again, let us bear one another's burdens. Let us weep with those who weep. Even as we rejoice with those who rejoice, we need to weep with those who weep. Helping and assisting those who are in a state of weakness all of this is a part of the preventive medicine that we can employ and use to strengthen the health and the well-being of this church of Christ's body. It's a great privilege, brethren, and I pray that we would grow in all these aspects of life and ministry. So let's end with the hymn. Now, this is the first time I've ever had the privilege of having a hymn that has a full psalter in it. And I'm so happy that we have this hymnal. We can go to the first part of the hymn, the first 150 songs, they're all based upon the Psalms. And obviously, the Psalms themselves are divinely inspired. These hymns that are based upon the Psalms, they're, they're hymns, but... But because they're rooted in the truths of the Psalms, they're very rich and very helpful in this matter of encouraging our hearts and praising God. 
who are we and what are we? We're servants of God in his house. We've just talked about that this morning. That's why we are to serve and minister understanding that it is his house and we go by his rules. And so very simply it says, you faithful servants of the Lord, sing unto, sing out his praise with one accord while serving him with all your might and keeping vigil through the night. This requires vigilance. This requires that we come to the household of God ready to serve him and to encourage one another.